Amen. Round of applause for my beautiful wife. She is awesome. Oh, I'm so, uh, I've been so looking forward to this day. Um, we're all coming off of the high of Wednesday night, which is a sugar high. More pancakes were consumed than I've seen in a very long time. All you can eat pancakes. Those things were being flipped across the room and caught on plates. If you were not here, you missed miraculous signs and wonders of catching pancakes. And um, many, many pancakes were consumed. The, uh, the male record for Chris Cakes is 72 pancakes. We did not come close to that record. We only got to, uh, I believe, 11, but 12. Gift cards were flying, and then a massive dance party broke out, which was so good. I, and there was like, the cha-cha slide was transpiring right here, and I can still see it in my imagination. It was, it was amazing. Um, and it was, it was our 18-year birthday. It was our celebration. Um, and resync is just that. When we, Julie already said it well, but when we think about uh, where we are as a family, we're believing God to sync our hearts to him and to one another in this month. That word sync is the word for harmony or one accord. That's a word in the scripture that God says to his people, would you uh, come into sync with me and one another? I love this scripture in Ephesians 2, 1 through 2. It says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. To be one mind, one heart, one spirit, and one purpose. This is what a resync looks like. And our beautiful church is spread across the city in home churches. We gather together on the second Sunday of the month. But we believe that there's seasons and there's times when God wants to build us back together in a unique way. And we are trusting the Holy Spirit is going to move during this month and already is. And I loved Wednesday night. Uh, a family that can have fun together, that is a culture of oneness. When you can dance together, eat pancakes together, take stupid photos together, that is where you begin to sync up uh, together. I think really what this morning is about is it's about remembering again and again throughout the history of God's people, they enter into this key practice of remembering. God instructs them to remember over and over and over. On one level, it's really obvious why. We are just forgetful. Can anyone, can I get an amen on that? Like, we just forget I forget all kinds of things, pretty much anything my, my wife asked me to do on some kind of a small level, I will forget it without some kind of mechanism to remember it. Um, we're forgetful, um, but this, this kind of instruction to remember is a lot more than just because we are forgetful. Um, it, it goes deeper. Um, of course, Jesus, on the night before his death, he gives the ultimate display, and his instruction is, as often as you do this, what? Remember. I want you to remember. And 
This instruction is not just for nostalgia, though nostalgia is great. I'm very nostalgic. Or some kind of romanticism of the past. Um, it goes a lot deeper. The, the call to remember is about anchoring yourself again in the faithfulness of God. Remembering that he has been good, and because he has been good, he will be good. We anchor ourselves in the faithfulness of God. But we also, because he has been good to us in the past, he will be good to us today. It anchors us in the hope, the joyful expectation that he will be good in the future. When we remember, we tie ourselves back to faithfulness. And we anchor ourselves to hope for the future. It is a powerful thing to do. I had those in my notes, but this morning as I was sitting before the Lord, he was like, those are good, Adam. Yes. You know, when the Lord just like, hey, can I, can I just help you out a little bit? I'm like, thank you so much, God. I started crying on this one because I felt like he just said, remembering is awesome. It, it is for you, but it's for me. Because I want you to pour out your worship on me again. When you remember, you begin to pour out worship on God again. And I pray that this is not just a collective practice, but an individual practice. Yesterday, I was talking to my good friend Dante. And just in his own story, his wife and uh, he are going through decisions that they're making. And just in five minutes, Dante's like, I just want to tell you something before you weigh in on it. God has been faithful to me here, 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 and here. So just take that into consideration with how crazy what I'm about to tell you is. And I thought... Let this not only be our collective practice, but Psalm 37 says, feast on God's faithfulness. Feast on it. Actually intentionally engage. You cannot be with Jesse Roberts without getting about 12 stories of God's faithfulness. Every time, yes, can I get an amen? Okay, every time I see him, he's like, here's where the Lord is faithful. Here's where the Lord is faithful. It challenges me. It encourages me. And so what we're doing today is we're entering into an ancient practice of the people of Israel, of Jesus, and of the apostles, in which they, the main way that they rehearsed God's faithfulness or remembered is they restoried. They told the story of God's goodness, not just bullet-pointed general things, but the stories of where a living and loving God has actually been good. And so what we want to do today is I want to tell the story of this people. And just like the biblical story, none of us were there when it happened, but we all get to step into it. Now, some of us in this story were there when it happened. And I'm, I'm kind of freaking out this morning because the Johnsons are here. I mean, guys, we both cried at the entrance today. I'm like, how did you come on the day that I'm telling the 18-year history? These guys moved here and basically helped establish this church. The Prestiges are here. Julie was on a roof about a block from here. I'll tell that story to launch this summer of purpose. I don't think you made it. I don't think you were faithful that night, Justin. <laughs> Justin anchored, anchored our stewardship board for most of the history of this church there family not only lived next to us, but helped build this church, served as elders in this church. And so some of you, I just want to say, God is amazing to bring you guys today. It's so crazy. I am freaking out. And some of you are like, this is my first Sunday. Literally, raise your hand if it's your first Sunday here. Look, we have, I mean, multiple people. Yes. Welcome. I'm not to embarrass you. 
But what I want to say is these 18 years are yours. These years are yours. This story is yours. Because freely we have received, freely we give. We welcome you to the family table where all of us get to enter into his faithfulness. Second Peter says this, the apostle in verse 1, 12 to 15. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. You, many of you know these stories. If it's old hat, let, there, let the wonder and goodness of God meet you again. Some of you, it'll be your first time hearing, and I pray that God will meet you afresh. Listen, he says, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I soon will put it aside as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. I hope I'm not saying that with Peter today, but that's fine. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you'll always be able to remember these things. Remember, remind, refresh, remember always. And so we tell the stories of God's faithfulness. The apostles did it. Jesus did it. The people of Israel did it. They storied themselves. And so I pray you can enter into the family story this morning. Um, I want to go back to in the year of our Lord, 2000. It was a scary time for humanity. Y2K and all that, yeah. Will the earth come to a screeching uh, halt? You know, every apocalyptic prophet on earth was prophesying, and he will come this year. Where will you be at Y2K? Um, other things were going on. God was, was doing a lot of cool things around the earth, but the world didn't end uh, then. I'll have you know. Here we are, 23 years later. We're always willing and waiting for Jesus to return, but it didn't happen in the year 2000. But God was birthing movements of prayer all over the world. A renewal and a resurgence in the church. Many in this room who are of, of that age were being radically filled and met by the Holy Spirit. The, the turn of 99-2000, and I've talked to so many people around the world, the Holy Spirit was moving profoundly in that time. And uh, one of the most profound things God ever did was send a weird person like David Blackwell and Adam Cox to Kansas City. I'm joking. But in the year 2000, we came to a very small seminary here in Kansas City. And uh, I remember meeting David Blackwell, and boy, was it overwhelming. So intense. If you can see a 43-year-old David Blackwell, just imagine the 19-year-old version. It was unbelievable. The first time we went to Denny's, we're hanging out, and he's just like veins going, and things are happening, and he's explaining Chicago hot dogs, and I'm just in a world of food and wonder and mystery. And he goes, watch this. And he bites two creamers, the ends off of two creamers, not the part you're supposed to open. He bites them, and he goes, into his coffee cup and streams are shooting in the coffee cup and I'm like it's frothing, man. It's frothing. I have no idea what is happening right now and um, it was love at first sight um, we were both in relational girl drama and nothing will get you to pray like that can I get an amen I was in the deep kimchi as my spiritual papa John Peterson would say I was in all kinds of relational dysfunction and David and I were very motivated to pray, you could say. So God will get you to his presence anyway, you know? And so we started praying together. And I remember a couple times in, when we would pray together, there would be like this unique 
presence of God. Pay attention. You'll have lots of relationships. Pay attention to the ones that Jesus enjoys. Because there's per people you'll get together with and God will go like, I like it. And I remember one of these times it was like almost like, I'm not, it's not like this, but a weird dating moment almost. I, I said after three times of praying, I was like, does this happen every time when you pray with everyone? You know, it's like that relational moment. Like, do you feel what I feel? <laughs> this is awesome. Um, because we would get together and God would just join the party. And then he sent these two wild ones from Alaska, Nathan and Marissa Chud. And anyone who knows them, they are just fun. They are just alive. They are the embodiment of Alaska. They just bring the adventurism and the, and the world-changing dreamer, you know. Let's conquer the frontiers kind of people. And uh, David had to move back for a little bit to Chicago to marry Molly. It worked out. The prayers worked. Come on, let's go, bro. Um, not so much for me, but later later. Amen. Okay. Um, so God answered at least one of our prayers that we, we live with unanswered prayer and answered prayer. That's, you'll notice that in 24 seven prayer. Um, and the Chuds and I started praying every morning at 8 a.m. And it was a similar thing. They had no furniture. We were in Grandview and their own one piece of furniture was a bouncy ball. And it was cool. I was single. And I remember being in the prayer meeting eating some mac and cheese, which I don't know why I was doing that at 10 a.m., but that's the bachelor life. And I'm eating the mac and cheese, and it's getting intense in prayer. And all of a sudden, the one piece of furniture gives way. The bouncy ball pops. Whoom! Macaroni and cheese everywhere. But these are the kind of prayer meetings that we had, you know. Um, but we love the presence of God. And it was early on that I discovered this. The seed of the kingdom is friends praying and dreaming. Everyone say it with me. The seed of the kingdom is friends praying and dreaming. Here's the recipe that will always change history. God finds a few people who like him. And he goes, oh, I love it when people like me. I'm going to give them my presence. And they start talking to him. It's called prayer. And they like each other. It's called love. And they build friendships. And where God finds a few people who like him and like each other, he goes, I am going to give them dreams which will scare them to death. And there begins the seed of the kingdom. This is the story of scripture, right? And I believe that that seed, if you will tend it and water it over time, will turn into covenantal prayer, prayerful. And those friendships will, not, will move beyond friendships and they will move into family. And that those seed-like, crazy, wild dreams will turn into actual mission of God that brings his kingdom. So I believe that the seed of friends praying and dreaming, if you give it time and you devote yourself to it, will turn into the beautiful tree of prayerful family on mission. And that is what we have seen from the very beginning, is this seed, you know, we, we started hanging out with this spiritual father named Floyd McClung, and uh, he was awesome. He took over the church from Mike Bickle down in Grandview, Metro Christian Fellowship, and um, he went through a really hard time in doing that. I think he lost about two-thirds of the church. That was a hard transition. I maybe learned more from that than I learned from seminary, learning how fathers fight and then steward forgiveness. That was a wild ride to be on. Um, and we got mentored by them. And I remember, some of you have heard this, but I remember Floyd beginning to introduce us, not just to revival, but what it looks like to try to take people with you. 
He said, Jesus loves revival, but he spent 70% of his time with 12 people. And he challenged us, will we always have a few that we will invest our life into making disciples? And so I was so stoked to hang out with this global leader who had been all over the nations and given his life in the red light district. And I was like, he's going to train me to preach to nations. And he was like, would you like to come walk my dog saucy with me? And I'm like, I guess. Do you want to come to a movie? Sure. And I'm thinking, this is the most unspiritual thing a church leader's ever asked me to do. And basically, he was building trust in relationship, and my heart was opening, and he was teaching me how to follow Jesus in all of life. And it changed me. It showed me Jesus's priorities, that we're not just after great meetings, but we're after making great disciples. Disciples who will follow him in all of life, that do that life on life, where we get past just the facade of our best foot forward and our best face forward, and we actually come into one another's lives in a deep way. And it changed us. And then we had our conversion to the church. I thought Jesus loved the movement of God and revival, and the only thing stopping it was the church. The last thing I ever wanted to do was start a church or be a pastor. It was like nightmare. And at times, I've come back to that place, but I haven't lived there, thank God. We're 18 years in. But he showed us that it could be different. He took us to Acts chapter 2. And that was a passage that rewrote my entire life. I call it my conversion to the church. And he didn't just take us to the passage. He said, what if you guys got a few people, young adults at that time, and you started to live the three loves, to love God, love one another, and love the world? I thought, man, that sounds like a great idea. And what if church didn't have to look like you thought it looked like growing up, but it could look like following Jesus in your real life? What if it could be house to house? What if you could devote yourself to the scripture together and to prayer? What if you could break bread? And so I remember starting our first home church. It was called a life group way back at Metro. And I literally just looked at Acts 2 and I was like, we're going to do every single thing we can do, except I haven't figured out totally how to release those signs and wonders yet. But we're just going to have a meal. Great. Break bread, take communion open the scripture, and we just did exactly what it said. And the life of God was on it. And it was incredible. It was way harder than I thought, but it was incredible. And I remember amazing things happening with those young adults, like banding together to get our friend Paige a car when she didn't have a vehicle. And I watched young adults like actually empty their bank accounts and buy a car for somebody. I was like, oh, this is the church. And something got a hold of us so much. We were living in those little apartments down there, but something got a hold of us to where we were like, we don't want to just live this once a week or twice a week. What if we moved into the, a house together? And we were all like, oh, that would be amazing. Two married couples and me, the single guy. I think they're still potentially having effects from me being attached to their two marriages. It was, it was a wild time. Here I was tagging along with these two married couples. And I'll never forget the day my buddy Chud was out walking around and he literally found a piece of paper as we had been praying that morning. What if we moved into a house and it was the may we help you back at our old church and there was a little uh, advertisement for a $950 a month house, which sounded like so much money at the time. And it kind of was, I guess. But it said it was five bedrooms. And we drive over there 
And it is a disaster. It's basically a foreclosed drug house. There's weeds up to your chest. Most of the, most of the windows are broken out. We kind of get in through the broken glass door after walking down the driveway. There's trash up to our ankles in the entire room, orange shag carpet, that old 80s paneling wall. And our young visionary minds are like, we love it. <laughs> That's what you do when you're 22 years old, right? We're like, we can see it. We could live Acts 2 here forever. I still live in that house. That was 20 years ago, okay? Wild. We, we move into the house and we begin to explore what does it look like to actually live this life following Jesus together. And that was the origin of our church. We call it the BCC, Blackwell, Chud, and Cox, right? It was the seed of the kingdom of some friends that were praying and dreaming, believing the world could change if we loved him and loved one another. And honestly, our vision hasn't strayed much from that first seed. Like what we still dream about is a few friends finding one another, falling in love with each other, falling in love with God, God going, wow, look how they love each other. I want to give them dreams that change the world. Bless you. That's, that's still our heart. That's still the seed we're trying to multiply. It's progressed over all these years, but that is where God started us off. And living in, bless you. Living in that house was, um, it changed my life. Because in Christianity, we're called to get past all of our best presentation. Like, do people know you? Do they know how you actually live? Are you able to share your struggles financially with anybody? Are you able to come to brothers or sisters when you're in a place of struggling sexually and open up and say, I need prayer. Are you able to have the most fun you've ever had with people? And people think, how are you not on some kind of substance? And you're like, we love Jesus. We would have the craziest parties you've ever seen in our house. One time, the floor was bouncing so hard. I came downstairs. There's still structural damage in my house. There was over 100 people in Halloween costumes, dancing in my house. I'm sorry if you're offended by that. We do love Jesus. But it was a young adult rager. There was no kegs, but it was nuts. And the, the whole house was bouncing. And I'm like, this is the beauty of the church. Jesus was a partier and a prayer, right? He loved to have fun. And something got said in us in those days, in those times. Right after we moved in the house, we took a trip with Floyd over to England and um, we were at this funny Christian festival. All Christian festivals are funny to some degree. And um, we were there, and we were literally walking down the sidewalk, and we bump into this sort of semi-cool, kind of fumbly-bumbly guy on the road with curly hair everywhere. And he's like, hey, are you guys with Floyd McClung? And we had no idea who this guy was, and we happened to be talking to this dude named Pete Gregg, right? He's like, 
I made an appointment. I want to meet. I want to have you guys for a curry. We need to go hang out. And we're like, okay. And then he starts making fun of Floyd right away. And nobody makes fun of Floyd. Floyd's six foot seven at that time. He was a huge Viking looking human being. He was just a massive guy. And we were like, we love this guy. Because he was always poking fun at, at Floyd for something he was wearing or having facial hair that was out of season or whatever it was. And so as, as Pete starts making fun, we're like, all right, we like this guy. Like immediately, you know. And uh, he took us out for curry that night, and he told us a little story uh, about him and his mates going out to build sandcastles, and all of a sudden this massive wave overtakes them, and he finds himself four years in to being the accidental leader of a worldwide prayer movement that had started in a small church on the south coast of England, and now is at that time in more than 40 nations. And he tells us this story of friends who wanted to pray like crazy, but all felt like they sucked at prayer. They were bad at prayer. And so they started a prayer room thinking a few people would show up and people started turning up and creative prayer started breaking out and the virus of it kept spreading and spreading and it started spreading through denominations. They put a little rinky-dink website up called 24-7 Prayer and it just went all over the world. But then communities started to birth because whenever there's prayer, there's a pregnancy and people then see, we want to follow Jesus and share Jesus and we want to do it together. And all of a sudden the church is always born out of the move of the spirit and prayer. So he started talking to us about boiler rooms and then he started talking to us about boiler rooms that moved where the lost and the hurting were that were right next to places of injustice and they were becoming the answer to their prayers. And we're eating curry and our mouths are just dropped and we're like, this is what we moved to Kansas City for. Like, we moved for 24-hour prayer, but not prayer where we just stay in a room. Prayer where we put prayer where it isn't. And where we do it in friendship. And now you're talking about church planning with prayer. And now you're talking about justice and mission. And honestly, I remember leaving that table that night and going, we'll probably never join 24-7 prayer. But he just gave us the language of the scriptures that we want to live out of. Well, lo and behold, we got put into a crazy crisis that night. And it was a wild one. And the crisis was Floyd's daughter across the world almost died and Pete's son almost died in the same night. And so that will bond you together for life. We were crying out. Both men thought their children were going to die. They were weeping. They were confessing the glory of God. We were in a living room for hours and hours and hours crying out to God. And that night, God united our hearts to Pete and Sammy in a way that's impossible to explain. I think he's written about it in one of his books now, but it was one of those sovereign places. He mobilized that young, budding 24-7 prayer movement, and God did two miracles in the same night. Floyd ended up having to fly home early on that trip, but God saved his daughter and his first grandson and did a miracle. She's still in medical books. They have no idea how it happened because amniotic fluid had filled her lungs. She lost consciousness for however many minutes. And the baby was without oxygen. And both have no mental problems whatsoever and were fully and totally healed. And Pete's, yes, praise God. And Pete's son, who took all kinds of his mom's epilepsy medicine, seizure medicine, high-level brain medicine, OD'd about half a bottle, went to the ER and did not have one effect or side effect as the prayer was answered. And we were like, wow, that was nuts. Floyd, out of that time, said to Pete, would you guys consider moving to Kansas City? And uh, he was like, we, 
my wife is having brain seizures every day. We, we're, we have an out-of-control prayer movement. It makes no sense to move to the Midwest of America. And then God spoke to him and said, you're moving to Kansas City. He moved his family over here for a year. And um, that year was a wild year. So we're talking 2004 now. One of the things that he did was he invited young David Blackwell to lead 24-7 prayer in the USA. And uh, I remember us feeling like this is so crazy. Back in those days, there was Relevant Magazine, and they had put Pete on the front of Relevant Magazine, and they did a US Today article about prayer all over the nation. And all of a sudden, Pete's like, hey, let's start 24-7 prayer in America out of Kansas City. And we were looking at him going, this is the worst city in America to start 24-7 prayer. There's this little thing called IHOP here. And then he said, I would like to start out of Metro. I was like, you couldn't have picked a worse church out of 3,500 churches than the church that birthed IHOP. We were leading young adults who were disillusioned by 24-7 prayer and didn't know if they felt spiritual enough going to college at that time. And Pete goes, let's do 24-7 prayer out of this church. And I'm like, this is the worst idea. And he invites David Blackwell. That was a good idea. And Dave prays and doesn't know. It's overwhelming. What is we going to do? Meeting with the heads of denominations across America with the Methodists and the Nazarenes and, you know, the Salvation Army. And we're 22 and 23 years old. And uh, God gives David a dream. And he's playing golf with Mike Bickle. And uh, I'll save the details of the dream, but God shortcut it and just said, hey, I'm good with two prayer movements. Let's do it. And uh, so we stepped into stewarding that. And so along the way, during that year, we started a little training school called Transit. And we, were, we invited a few young people. Mark Sawyer was one of those people. And by January, they had all come to us and asked if they could quit the program because we were terrible leaders. I mean, awful. It really, we were trying our best, but they were literally, we were begging people, just give us one more month. Have you ever had a training program where you're begging the students not to leave? Some of them did. And we were like, God, you got to save us. I know you called us. I know we can't lead, but please help us out here. And the Lord, before Pete had moved here, the Lord inspired us to try a 24-7 prayer room. We, and we felt we, we were supposed to do it on the campus of UMKC. And uh, it was wild. There was no place an administration was going to let us. Thankfully, we had one or two students, but there was no place. Where do you put a 24-7 prayer room on a college campus? They're like, no, that doesn't make any sense, not interested. But finally, we got a hold of someone, and they walked us to the international dorms to a room called the Acorn Room. And they said, you can have this room 24-7. And we got our students to start a 24-7 prayer room. There's about 900 students living in there. And we put up all the prayer stations everywhere. And we welcome God's presence. We're like, we don't know who else is going to come. But we know our students have to be in here basically as prayer servants um, night and day. And so we set them up. But then students started coming in. Muslim students started coming in. Indian students started coming in. We started doing tours of the prayer room, and people started encountering Jesus. And God started encountering our students, and God saved our butts because he saved the program. But it was through a 24-7 prayer room that God met us and moved. And we were like, wow. Like, what is this? This is the center of something, like the presence of God, putting prayer where people don't want to pray. And David and I took a little walk during that prayer week, and we were walking around, and we walked over to a building, and it was called the Shepherd Center, 
And uh, I'm going to try to summarize 18 years of history in 45 minutes, and I'm aware we really need a, a fire to sit by and hours to do this, but I pray that and trust that this will be helpful. We walk up to the Shepherd Center, and uh, David, being as bold as he is, basically a, a person greets us at the door, and he's like, I'm like, Dave, dude, I don't know. And he's like, we're going. So he goes right in there, Chicago style, and uh, he's like, hey, can we uh, get a tour of the place? And she's like, this is an elderly ministry. And we're like, we thought it was a frat house, literally. And then we look up, and the sign, because it's right on the campus, and the sign says Shepherd Center. And David just starts talking, hey, we want to do, like, a church plant thing and, and have a prayer room and, and, and all this. And she's like, well, this is crazy. We're actually moving our ministry out of this house. Come back next week, and we can talk about it. So we go back, and the first time we meet with them, they give us the keys to this house. And they say we can use the basement for prayer. Now our students are there, and uh, you know we're coming into our second year, and Pete has been working with us about what would it look like to plant a community that's centered in prayer. And we were scared to death at this time. We were leading a bunch of young adults. We were young adults. I do not advise planting a church at 23 years old in any way, shape, or form. There's only one reason we're here 18 years later, and that's mother th mothers and fathers that have saved our butts over and over and over by loving us more than anything we can ever produce. But I remember dreaming about that first boiler room, and that's what our church was called. So these are the years of the boiler room, these 10 years, okay? And um, we have, we're, we move into the Shepherd Center house, and we start the boiler room, and we start Rhythms of Prayer, and we've got our students, early 2004. And about midway through the year, we're so excited about the start of this church, and I have two dreams in two nights. And these dreams have absolutely marked our lives. The first night, the dream is this. I get given three letters. One is addressed to David, Nathan, and myself. And in the letters, the short story is the person writes and says, I'm sorry you've been proselytizing on campus or sharing Jesus, and you can no longer have uh, the Shepherd Center house. We're taking it away from you. And I, the dream changes, and I'm weeping, and I'm with Dave, and the Lord is says, Dave says to me very clearly, where we're going so much better, buddy. Don't worry about it. But I wake up and I'm physically crying. I don't know if you've ever had a dream so real that you're crying when you wake up out of it. And I'm thinking, God, we just got into the building. We just started our adventure. Don't take away the shepherd center. Please, Lord. And we fast and we pray. And I'll tell you the rest of the story in a second. But I'm like, man, Lord, I know you said you're taking away. Please change your mind. The next night, I have another dream. And we're sitting in the Shepherd Center in a circle. And in that place, a guy looks at me and he says, you're the shepherd like Ezekiel 34. Now, I do not dream. I maybe get one every three to five years, maybe, that's meaningful. And two, in, two nights in a row, both connected to the same thing was like unbelievable. And so I wake up. I don't know how many of you have memorized Ezekiel 34, but I was just like, I had no idea what Ezekiel 34 is. And I was like, please don't be, let it be judgment on Babylon. Or I don't know what this is going to be. And it's kind of worse than that. When you read it, it is a rebuke to the shepherds of Israel. And it actually says this. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. 
And with force and harshness you've ruled. So they're scattered because there's no shepherd. And they became food for wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over mountains and hills. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth. None would search or seek for them. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for the sheep and I will seek them out. And it felt the father say, I am going to take the shepherd center, but I am calling you to be a shepherd center. Will you love the weak? Will you love the stray? Will you search for the sick and will you go after the lost? And that word has marked every single day of these 18 years. What a beautiful story. And when I think back, I think of so many moments where the Lord has allowed us to walk into the reality of that word. Is it everything? No, I have so many dreams. I hope you do too. But is it something you better believe it is something, how God has walked us into that word. But it lives in me. Will we be a people marked by the Shepherd Center? That first dream was when I was weeping, and I said, God, please don't take away the building. He said this to me, Adam, don't weep that I'm taking the building. The church is a people, not a building. I should have known we were going to have trouble with buildings ever since then. (laughs) That God would test us over and over and over. Is the church actually a people? If the building is gone, will you survive? No, will you thrive? Well, the Lord would have plans for that. Will you prioritize the ones that move my heart? Will you be a shepherd center for the people? The next 10 years would be the Kansas City Boiler Room story. And it is a wild one. Again, I would need so much time to unfold all. I'm looking at my row here. But (laughs) 2005 to 2015, the one thing that's always been consistent in the history of our church is that we have met in homes. We've met on Wednesday nights, every other Wednesday night, every other Sunday morning, Sunday evenings, Sunday mornings once a month. We've met at tables. We, he's Look at this. I love this. This is so helpful, Casey. He's like, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. But the one thing that has never changed is we've always, since our first year, met in homes. Acts 2 has been what we have aimed at. So some have thought, well, now you're a home church church. No. The only thing we've ever tried to pursue is Acts chapter 2 since the first day. It is way harder if anyone would have told me how challenging it is to live authentically a prayerful family on mission expression, I may have given up. But it is way more worth it than I could ever imagine. I remember in those earliest days, uh, we were... Without the Shepherd Center, we end up, they called me on that February Valentine's Day and she read me the letter from my dream. That was intense. We had been fasting and praying. They took the building. So there we were right away. Is the church a people or a building? And I remember an artist moving into town who became a close friend named Linnea Sprancy. And uh, she got a house. She was uh, like one of the only ones of us that could afford a house, especially down in Midtown. And she got one. And we started meeting in her home. And I was out looking for an artist space for her because she was an artist moving the city. We're driving around downtown. And all of a sudden, we're joking around about strikeout after strikeout, not finding a place. And I see the 247 Main Street bus. And I joke with her. I'm like, look, 
247 Main Street. Let's follow that bus. Maybe it'll take us to the right spot. We turn really quick downtown. We hook a left. We're going down Main Street. And all of a sudden she goes, hey, that's our last building we got to see, the Monarch Building. So we're laughing. We pull in the parking lot. We follow the 24-7 Main Street bus. And we walk in the door. And it's this beautiful artist facility and this loft. And the guy shows us around the gallery. And he's like, every floor is about 3,000 square feet, $900 a month. You can move in today. And we go, yeah, we're in. It was a week before our students moved, and we were just starting the church in our homes, and all of a sudden, he gives us this building on Main Street, 3829 Main Street, called the Boiler Room. It's this urban loft building, and uh, man, so many memories from that building. We start with one floor on the second floor, move the artists in, we move students in, we have no chairs. We have no musicians. We're using literally a transparency machine. You remember those? Anyone remember those? You put slides on them. That was our that was our deal, right? No chairs. Everyone's sitting on the floor. We got 30 crazy people. People start bringing their dogs to our meetings. They find out about our artists, resident artists. They start showing up, and uh, we're like, we feel God say, "I want you to teach the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, called the God story." No musical worship, just teach the Bible for nine months. And we're like, this is the worst church growth strategy ever. We have no chairs. We just teach the Bible. There's no musical worship. And it's like, oh my gosh, okay. And people were hungry for the scriptures. I remember the first meeting we ever had, we gathered around the room in a circle, and we said one simple thing. We said, Jesus, be the center of this church. Be the center pillar. And so we called it the Jesus pillar. And it was amazing because you had to preach behind the Jesus pillar like this. And so I was about six feet behind. And so to talk to these people, I had to step here. And I talked to them, I had to step there. And it was like Jesus was always in the way, you know. And, um, and that was a great reminder because it was like, yes, you're the center of this church. And for me, that is not a trite thing. Over and over, we've had to repent. In fact, that first meeting, we said, Jesus, if you're ever not the center or the head of this church, would you please tell us quickly, and we want to repent. And he would test us on this over and over. Am I actually the head of the church? Are you going to do any crazy thing that I say? If there's one thing I can look back on our entire history, it is this, that we have, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, tried to obey Jesus and keep him as the center and the head of the church. Then we grabbed one another's hands, and we said, every part must bring their contribution so Ephesians 4, we can grow up into Christ. And we said, look at the person on your right and on your left, and welcome their full participation. We say it like this, every part must dissipate, right? Like, we are not called to spectate, but participate. Every part brings the dreams and their gifts and what they're called to, and somehow through that, we find our way into it. We've said the vision is Jesus from the beginning, and we mean the vision is Jesus. Like, we actually want to follow Jesus in all of life. But he welcomed us right away into these values of prayer, family, and mission. The first thing we did was we built a prayer room. I still have a scar on my finger where I put the drill through my finger. It's like a nice cross to remember that prayer sometimes includes suffering. But I... It tells you that wall was not straight. I was building it. Not until Casey Johnson would come would we get upgrade big time. But 
we built a prayer room, and right away we started rhythms of 24-7 prayer. We've always had and always been a people of prayer. Why did we start there? Because our greatest treasure, Nava, will always and ever be the presence of God. It is our treasure. God himself is our reward, not anything else. I've been testing on that again and again and again. When we say prayerful, we mean all of life in the presence of God, practicing the presence of God. Prayer is merely a response to the presence of God being everything for you. Do you treasure his presence more than anything? This is who we are, Nava. This is who we have always been. God sewed us into a 24-7 prayer room, which is a movement, which is just a big fat excuse because the Father wants to be with you. That's what a prayer room is all about. God wants to have your attention, your heart, whether you're at work and your home, wherever. We've had spare rooms that turn into prayer rooms. We've done prayer B&Bs where we rented them. We've done backyard prayer, tent prayer. Uh, you know, we've been, we did 14 semesters in the center of UMKC doing prayer rooms. We literally physically called every single campus in America, 2,400 and something campuses, and invited them into a nonstop year of prayer. This little church did that. We saw Campus America prayer on every uh, a year of unbroken prayer, which has led to the state of every campus. The last two years that came out of that in 2010, there has been prayer on every campus in America the last two years out of that movement that's been growing that David and Wendy and others led years ago. But why all that prayer? We would spend one week a month in 24-7 prayer. Some seasons we would do 40 days of prayer. Why all that prayer? Because the presence of God is everything. All of life and the presence of God. We pray the kids' liturgy every week. We're doing the following Jesus liturgy. We prayed in all kinds of ways at all hours of the day. But do not lose the inheritance of prayer. And then there's mission. I love it. Early days in prayer, we set up the National Prayer Office, David and Wendy and others, stewarding prayer across this nation out of our church. There's mission. Mission for us has always flowed from every contribution. It's flowed out of the people themselves. And so we had Linnea, and so Linnea stewarded her passion for artists. And so at one point, two-thirds of our church were artists. And we started the first Christian organization at KCAI's 100-year history. And kids were turning their, their uh, studios into prayer spaces and sacred spaces, and we were doing identity weekends, and kids were meeting Jesus left and right, and they're still the seed of creativity in this church in the most profound way. But why? Because someone had a contribution for the artist, and so the artists came. I remember Justin Andrews. He was a runner, and so he started leading runners to the Lord, and so we had a whole runners community. It was beautiful. I love when God did that. We had, we had a girl named Lindsay who had a passion for inner city mothers and hip-hop dancers. And so we saw hip-hop dancers come to Jesus in our first ever Alpha. We had a whole community. I could still know where one of the guys works today. You know, Joshy G and L Boogie and all these guys that came to know Jesus, right? And an entire subculture of hip-hop dancers would come into our sanctuary and hold hip-hop dances. That's a part of our history, like I said, UMKC and international students and 
you know, years and years of prayer. Exodus cry and Helen's contribution. We still have the remnant of going after anti-human trafficking and all that God would steward there. And the beauty of various people at Elementary at 24th and Prospect, where we stewarded years of doing Thanksgiving for a bunch of moms and dads who felt beat up by the world. And we would go in and do reading clubs and prayer. That came out of Laura Cardwell's heart. And so what is the contribution that is in your heart? What does it look like? Well, we have always been, what makes Nava? Nava is the people of Nava, the glory of God that you're carrying. It's not the vision that comes from the front. In fact, in the very first year, God said, you're not allowed to build around personalities or gifts. It can't be around one guy and how he speaks or one woman and how she leads worship. Nava is about every person and the part they play to bring the glory of God into the city. The mission of God follows the contribution and passion that lives in your heart. God's dreams are dwelling in you. And if you're waiting for Nava to give you the vision, we as a people are waiting for you to stand in the name of Jesus and let the Spirit of God burst something through you into the city. That is how we are formed. It's who we've always been. The mission of God follows your contribution. I remember we were praying one time with our oversight. And as we were seeking the Lord, God gave one of our oversight. I love it. John Peterson's one of our spiritual fathers. He was asleep on the couch. And as we were seeking the Lord, one of the women said, I see God giving you a family crest of St. Patrick. It's a four-leaf clover. And she said, God is going to set you at the crossroads of society, just like the old monasteries. And you're going to be like apostolic and monastic. And he's going to set you there. And as she was saying it, a knock came at the door, and in comes a, a hand, and this book comes through the door, literally. I thought it was an angel. It wasn't. It was just a guy I was leading to the Lord at the coffee shop I was working at. I was bivocational. And a, and a book comes in, and it has four four-leaf clovers on the front of the book as she's given us the word. Lo and behold, that year, 2009, God had, uh, God, the Pope, he's not God, had changed St. Patrick's Day. That's funny, anyways. He had changed St. Patrick's Day in 2009 because it can't be on Holy Week. So it was actually St. Patrick's Day on the day she gave us the word, 2009. Four four-leaf clovers. We look at the title. It says, Christianity and Social Adventuring. That sounds like us, right? I open up the first chapter, and it says, titled, To a Family Who Loved the Fun of Social Adventuring for International Friendship. To a family who loves the fun of social adventuring for international friendship. Are you guys ready for some fun? Some social adventuring out of international friendship. And then you look at the chapters. These chapters are amazing. I got to read these to you. Civic righteousness, practicing the Sermon on the Mount, the church and social questions, the changing place of the church, how Christians might cooperate, the church and social agencies, child dependency, juvenile delinquency, social sediment of, re of religion, using uh, case necking, health, mental hygiene, uh, social hygiene, law enforcement, the church and education, community recreation, YMCA, the church and industry, the immigrant, the local jail, ministering to the disabled, translating Christianity into daily community life. And... 
the Lord, the fear of the Lord hit the room, and we knew the Father was calling us into social adventuring all the days of our life. That God was opening this beautiful door. And he was marking us with this family crest of St. Patrick's. And it was a call to be in all the spheres of society. This was written in 1920. I'm like, it took us 100 years to get back here, church. It was a reformation of the church that God was speaking to. Mission comes from who we are and our contribution. But we are family of formation. Um, this was one of the most profound moments that happened. In 2009, we're getting to the end of the kind of boiler room story, but in 2009, we had a retreat and a sovereign encounter with the Lord. The presence of the Lord filled the room. I don't know if you've ever felt the Holy Spirit's presence so strong that you just can't get up. You're on the ground. And as soon as the Holy Spirit came, I felt the Holy Spirit weeping and grieved. And I was like, God, what are you weeping over? And the Holy Spirit said, I'm weeping because you think you're a better pastor than me. And I was like, what do you even mean? And I started weeping. And he said, I am a better pastor than you. I'm safer. I'm more wise. I have more than you have in every way, shape, or form. Why are you protecting people from me? And I began repenting. And before I could even get out, sorry, the Holy Spirit said, we're good. But I need you to stand up publicly and say, you're not a better pastor than me. And then I need you to make a covenant for the rest of the history of this church that you will do whatever I say and you will release the Holy Spirit. We are a people of the Holy Spirit. I thought signs and wonders were going to break out. And the greatest thing that the Spirit could ever do, he began to do. And that was the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit began to plunge into the depth of our heart and rewrite our inner world, starting with me. I didn't realize I was on a ping pong table of perfection and rejection all my life, and I needed to project something impressive to give me value and identity. And the Lord began to undo every root of my life. And then every one of our leaders, and the spirit of adoption began to move so powerfully over the next six years that we almost could not speak another message but beloved, right? Can anyone who has been here for a while give me a nod right now? Beloved, 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 beloved. And God God began to do a word in family saying, I want to heal you from the depths of your being and I want to bring you home because you cannot give to the world what you do not have. You are a family formed by me. And he began to rewrite our story. And we began to move into the depths of family because we were allowing God to meet us. And the spirit of adoption began to mark this church. And it did so strongly that God said, you cannot call yourself the boiler room anymore. And I was like, I don't even know what you're saying. I remember him addressing our leadership team. And he said, well, what's a boiler room? And it's like, it's pressure for productivity. And I was like, yep, that sounds about right. A lot of pressure to produce stuff. And he was like, what if I bring you home? What if I mark you with the spirit of adoption? I need to change your name. In the moment of us deciding, should we change our name? I'm in the prayer room before one of these gatherings, and this beautiful Indonesian man named Champy comes, and he's like, Adam, I was the only one in the prayer room. He goes, I just discovered this incredible word. It's called Nava. And I'm like, okay. He's like, it's Hebrew. It's beautiful. He's like, in the ancient Hebrew, 
There's no vowels. So it was the N, the V, and the H. They were pictures. And he begins to describe it. He says the N is a picture of a seed with a sprout. It stands for generational legacy of a father passing legacy to a son. And I was like, he's just, I'm like all in at this point. I'm like, okay. He's like, the V is like a tent peg. It's driven down to anchor the home. It's where the word home came for, from the ancient Hebrews. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. And then he goes, and the H is like the picture of a worshiper worshiping God. It's praise unto the Lord. But actually the A-H, when it's added to anything in the Hebrew, means the breath or the spirit of God. And right when he says it, I hear the whole gospel. A father sent his son to bring generational legacy by bringing us home through the power of the spirit so that worship and the glory of God can come. And I just fell on the ground and I was like, I began to pray. Nava me God, Nava me God, Nava me God, because it's a verb. It means to bring home and make beautiful. I remember we took about a year to figure out, do we actually go with that weird name? And I was like, please, Lord, no. Like, Boiler Room was already weird enough. No one's ever going to understand this. Our elders had huge discussions. We took a long process. And I remember we came down to the day, would we actually go with this wild name? And I began weeping because I was so stressed out about it. And I remember the father saying, as we were literally minutes before going through this, we have to make the decision and go through a process. And I'm crying and I'm in the presence of friends. And I heard the Lord say, Nava is not a name I'm going to write on the outside of a building. Lo and behold, we wouldn't have one. (laughs) Nava is not a name I want to write on a website. That's great. He said, I want to write Nava upon your heart, Adam. And he said, Psalm 62, 5. And I want to write it on the heart of a generation. And I look up Psalm 62, 5, didn't have it memorized, and it says, my soul finds rest in God alone. Now, we do home churches at Nava, right? But I believe the Lord would say to us, home churches are one thing, but what about a church that is a home for God? That's what Nava means. Is God at home in your life without resistance to the Holy Spirit? Can God find a resting place in your being? When God looks at Kansas City, is Nava one of the places where he goes, I am without resistance. I can be home. I can fully be myself there. Home churches are awesome, but to be a church that is actually a home for God, that is God's desire. He is looking for a place to dwell. God longs to dwell. And only when God is at home in your life can you then enter into the story of bringing home and making beautiful. Nava is not our name. It describes the gospel. It describes what Jesus has done for us. He has brought you home in the most painful places of your being. He is touching you in the places you don't want anyone else to see. And he is coming to rest in your life. And when God comes home in you and you are brought home in him, everything starts to be restored. And you get to participate in Nava in the world. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We changed our name in 2015. And we had been waiting on God for a number of years, and I realize I am so close to the end. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. I thought this might take some time, but I'll trust the Lord. We had waited seven years to get into PlexPod 
over at Dream, and God brought us in there, and it was, um, it was a phenomenal miracle of the Lord. And after being there 18 months, a spiritual father in the city came over, and uh, we were excited. We had put a prayer room in there, and we were doing noon prayer every day. There were 70 businesses. We had just done 40 days of prayer. God began to move. We did a Love KC summer. We had 150 stories of neighboring that summer of this body missioning in their neighborhoods. We went through three months of lament where we laid on the ground and we healed and we cried out to God and let him meet our hearts. And we came into that June of 2018 and the spiritual father came over and he said, Adam, I have a very sober message for you. The Lord is going to crush you. He wants to make new wine and a new wineskin. And I was like, that's been our last 10 years becoming the beloved. Like, that is the worst word. We just moved in. God's moving. What do you mean? What are you even saying he's going to crush us? And the father confirmed the word a few months later, and he asked our leadership team, I want you to surrender Plexpod. I want you to give up this dream you've been waiting on seven years. The dream of that was to be set at the crossroads of society, to, to see the church reimagined, and to do home churches around it as a resource. And um, the Lord asked for it back. And it was such a surrender moment. And I remember for months, five months, we kept asking God, what's the new wineskin? And God finally spoke to us, and I want to mark us with this, Nava. He said, the new wineskin is this, a family fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Because into that wineskin, I can pour new wine. I can pour whatever I want to if you will fully surrender. Nava, we are a people of the Holy Spirit. We're a people that brings home and makes beautiful. After five months of waiting on the Lord, the week before, we were reading our daily Bible, and Numbers 9 came up. And we knew that we knew. It said, after a year at Sinai, the cloud lifted, and they followed a cloud. And God said, follow a cloud. And we were like, that is the worst news ever after five months. <laughs> like, what do you do with that, right? He had given Julie a dream that the father was painting a picture, and it was foggy. And it has been foggy for about five years in the wilderness. We have not totally known but boy, have we walked through crushing. And boy, has God brought a new wineskin. But that follow the cloud word tested us so profoundly. A year before the pandemic, we first, we go to a Nazarene church in a strip mall out in Lee Summit. And God moves amongst that leadership team. And most of their leadership team gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. He takes us downtown in the city. He takes us to a Presbyterian church in South Kansas City. He then takes us to a Pentecostal Latino church in KCK through Joseph Wally meeting someone in a Mexican grocery store. And we wander around the city learning dependency a year before COVID. And God begins to reform and refine us for the last five years. He begins to mature us and do something profound with our lives and our heart. It's been a crazy journey following Jesus in this way. The wilderness is a preparation, not a punishment. A normal transition in your personal life will be three to five years. It's called liminal space. It's where 
Nothing from the past can you hang on to, and nothing in the future is clear, and so all you have is God. He's done it with Jesus. He's done it with Israel. And the reason he does it is he's trying to refine and reform, and he's calling for a new and beautiful birthing. After about four years, God finally gave us this language of an ecosystem. On the night coming up, uh, the 20th, we're going to gather here and we're going to share more vision and dreams are going to come out of you. I encourage you to kind of look at that ecosystem. But he basically said, this is what I did with Israel. I gave them a rule of life set into an annual rhythm and a discipleship culture. I put them into regions and put my presence as a resource center at the middle. I reformed them entirely and I made them a people where every tribe had to flourish and cultivate the land. And he said, over these years of moving together and wandering, I'm giving you a picture of who you've always been, a prayerful family on mission. Jesus is calling Nava once again, to the heart of prayer. What does it mean to live all of life in the presence of God? To prioritize his presence. To commit to one another in the depth of our home churches, but to work out the kingdom of God amongst one another, the mission of Jesus. He is calling us to bring home and make beautiful. And these 18 years have marked us so profoundly with his story. But when you walk with God, the greatest days are always ahead. He's always this God of hope. He goes from glory to glory. He transforms us. And honestly, guys, the last five years, they have broken and crushed deeply. But when I look around, I see a new wineskin. I see contribution coming out of people that never would have happened. I see a reformation from going to church to being the church. We're going to share stories of just what God's done in the last year on the 20th. It's phenomenal what's coming out of people's lives. Every Sunday, instead of one person, their platform and their ministry or a few paid professionals, the priesthood of believers is operating all over the city. People are learning to live their everyday lives following Jesus. We're actually becoming a people that brings home and makes beautiful. That's the story that God is writing. Has it been hard for me and a lot of other people? Absolutely. We're in a political year. Centering the kingdom in the middle of 2020, we lost many people. But guys, as we go into a political year again, we will center the kingdom of God once again. We will not say we are a democratic church or a republican church. We will say we are a kingdom of God church that measures our maturity by our listening love. That was costly. We saw a shaking in the church around, but friends, we have been reformed and refined, and the Father is inviting us to be a prayerful family on mission, following and being formed by Jesus in all of life. Will we take our name and become a home for God? So I want to close this uh, remembering time. Again, I had to leave out a lot of stories I'm sad about, um, but what I would like to do is I would like to do something we've done throughout our history and form a circle all the way around this room if we can. And so I know that's coordination. you got to stand up and grab a hand all the way around. Stretch out far. I think we'll make it. Beautiful. You can move up. And grab a hand around you. Let's make a circle all the way around. I want you to take a moment and look at the person to your right and your left and look all the way around the circle. We are Nava. 
Nava isn't a few impressive leaders. Nava doesn't have a vision, which all comes from one leadership team. The vision is still Jesus. Jesus at the center. This is a lot bigger circle than we started with all those years ago. But the heart remains the same. Will we let Jesus lead us? Whatever he says, wherever he goes, will we follow? This family is courageous. We left our building behind, and we believe the church is a people. We actually believe Jesus is the best pastor and the chief shepherd of this church. So let's say together again, Jesus, you're the center. Jesus, you're the center. Jesus, you're the head. Jesus, you're the shepherd. Jesus, you're worthy. Wherever you go, whatever you say, we will follow. Be the center. And if you're ever not, for even a moment, tell us quickly, we want to repent. Jesus, will you lead this church? We want a social adventure. We want to do every crazy thing that you want us to do, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it means decline. Jesus, we trust you. Make him the head of your household. Make him the Lord of your life. He will be the Lord of this church. Amen? Amen. Now I want you to look at the person again on your right and your left. And I want you to just begin blessing them. Just in your heart. Just begin blessing them. Begin thanking God for them. Call out all the gifts. All of the dreams. Friends, there's dreams latent in this room. They've been buried by pain and I totally get that. I'm one of those people. I've been disappointed more times than I can tell you in 18 years. But I come back to the face of God and I say, release your dream through me again. I may be hurting like hell, but I want heaven to invade my mind again. I want to be activated. We need to believe that the glory of God is in every part of this body, just like we started. And we will not see the vision of Nava unless it's released through every single person. So let's pray together. God, would you activate every heart? Would you call forth every dream? Would you move through every gift? Would you bring your glory through every person? Christ in us, the hope of glory, that in all things we may grow up into him who is Christ. Lord, thank you for a prayerful family on mission, that the best days are ahead because you're a God of hope. Lord, would you release your glory? Would you make us an intergenerational family? A multicultural family. We are not satisfied with how many nations are in our church. Would you bring more nations than we, than we can keep up with? More languages, more cultures. Lord, live your dream through us. And God, would we, Nava, be able to participate in your story in Kansas City as one part and in your story in the nations as one family? Resync us together, one heart and one mind. In Jesus' beautiful name. And all the family said, amen.
Okay, let's pray the Lord's Prayer because we closed every gathering for 18 years with it, so it'd just be wrong to not. Our Father, 